Thank you, Ajahn, for a beautiful talk about mindfulness of body. Could you refer to the other three foundations? Yeah. Well, they all, rather like Russian dolls, they all, they all unfold from this uh, basic foundation of um, mindfulness of body. When you have that, then you've got some way in which you can contemplate feeling rather than just be dodging it or chasing it. <laughs> so it makes feeling. And the, the second foundation is now translated as establishment of mindfulness, satipatthana. Feeling, it does also include perception because most of what we feel isn't derived through tactile basis but through mental touch. Okay, so you might see something and feel that's a lovely thing, but actually it's not. You see something in your mind, or called mano, the mano faculty of mind, describes that as pleasant. So the mano faculty, which is another aspect of mind, derives perceptions, meanings, impressions from the sense bases and touches the chitta, the heart mind, with them. It says, oh, that's a cute little dog. Oh, pleasant, agreeable feeling. Yeah. So, yeah, so the feeling also includes the perception. And most powerful feeling, and most of the feeling we occur, we, we have, is based upon mental contact. And you can sense that because when that touches your 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 embodiment, you get a shiver, subtle resonance. You know, where you get a really strong resonance. You know, if it's unpleasant, you get. Yeah. And yet nothing's actually touched you. you know, but just the sight of it, you shiver. Just the thought of it, you shiver. It's the mind that's doing it, the manal mind. So you can feel that in your body. Third foundation, chitta, is what I'm talking about, heart, mind. And with this, once you have this basis, you can sense whether the mind is contracted or expanded. Whether it's affected by love or hate. Because you're reading it, you're feeling it. How else, how can you really get perspective on your mind if you're in it? You get perspective on it by standing next to it. So the body acts as a place that can stand next to, this is just a metaphor of course, next to the body, experiencing, you know. So it's got that as a mooring post that it can feel the tugs and pulls. So that's a better way of looking at it. If your chitta, your heart mind is moored, established in the body, then it can feel the push of ill will, yeah? the expansion of open-heartedness, the contraction of fear. So you've got that found. When that's established, then you can really read your chitta. The fourth dhammas are the nature of the ethical, or ethical, but uh, intentional. So these are the triggers that trigger, these are the colours or the flavours of the intentions that arise when the chitta is touched. Okay, that's a slightly clumsy phrase, but when the chitta, heart-mind is touched by something, the intention or the impulse that arises could be of ill will, for example. That's a dhamma. It could be of compassion. That's a dhamma. It could be of a sense desire. That's, that's a dhamma. So reading the particular qualities of intentions or the impulses that arise when the chitta is, is touched, like a guitar string. And, you know, there are um, fundamentally, you know, in the Sati, well, in the Satipatthana, you have, the, if you like, very simply, you have the positive and the negatives. Those lead to enlightenment, 
the kind of touches that give rise to faith, the movement of faith, which is an opening, the movement of, of resolution, which is a firming up, or the movement of depression, or the movement of doubt, which tangles everything up. So, and you've got something that's registering those. And this is how you, you sense it. So you don't have to wait. It's not like, I'll do body first. When I've got that together, and I'll do feeling, okay, tick. And then got number three, check, got that one, and now I'll do number four. Number four comes running in as soon as you sit down. <laughs> it doesn't wait. The ill will, <laughs> it doesn't hang around till you're ready. It's right there knocking on the door. But you, if you establish the mindfulness of body first, then you've got some way of meeting that stuff as it rises. So it's not exactly a, a, a one, two, three, four step. It's more like these are the four weaves, you know, like, like a thumb and three fingers that are just co, co cooperating. And we use the body to act as the as the mooring post in all that movement and form. And you can you can then review these various other bases from that from that place. Mm. Is that why you use the term heart mind? Yeah. Yes. Is that that the translation of chitta in in your tradition, or because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not? I used to call me chitta mind, right? But heart mind, you're saying. So, <laughs> translations, words are words, translations are translations. <laughs> it, it, you know, I mean, you try and find it standard, it's not going to happen. Basically, you see, because English is different. But when, uh, say, a uh, Thai person talks about their chit, they oh, my chit, they point to their chest. It's in here. Jit jai means to understand. Jit jai is, it means an understanding. That happens here in, in the middle of the chest. They're referring to what we call heart. You know? So it's closer, but then I generally say mind-heart awareness because heart can sometimes be limited just purely to emotional qualities, but then things like wisdom is still a heart, is still a jitter quality. Spaciousness is a jitter quality. Yeah. Uh, so jitter is the, is the predominant and most meaningful aspect of our, of our intelligence. And thinking is a kind of subsidiary that we do <laughs> to sort of back up should be there to back up our intelligence it often it often replaces our intelligence <laughs> so for in buddha dharma intelligence comes from the heart and and thought should just try to shape it up instead of replace it so heart mind is probably yeah. the easiest one yeah is karma self-perpetuating once the poisons accumulate into anger, rage, vengeance, etc., do these states or qualities that res are, are are they the result of karma, and then result in more of these negative qualities and more negative and aversive aversive karma? Is that how karma works? If you follow it, yeah. But of course, you don't have to. That's the point. I mean, because it's rather like an electric current, but it's coming in pulses. So, you know, every karmic pulse. You know, has has a has a, a like a wave form to it. So the rage comes up and it dies down. The the you know, impulse to act arises. And you wait. You tend to pass. So you have karma, but then karma is more like a fluctuating pulsation rather than a steady line. So every time the the theme is that if you can get some perspective on it, then you find the place where it's it calms down a bit, and then you stop. Then you can divert it. 
right? You can divert it when the waveform subsides, then you've got an easy way to divert it. Uh, and you, of course, otherwise you block it, you just cut it off. But that, that is only of temporary, um, temporary use. So in terms of Dharma practice in general, the first line of it is conventional, which is trying to get those that wave of karma, something we're conscious of and we're steering towards a good place and maybe checking it when it's flowing in the wrong direction. Uh, and then further liberation is to be able to, you know, actually look into the, the waveform and quieten the whole thing down and switch it off. There's a term pleasure. Is that a reference to this sort of wave? Klesher is the Sanskrit, I believe. Klesha, Klesha, defilement. These are the kind of um, hot spots that, that trigger. You know, say you might have a peanut butter Klesha. <laughs> when it, you know, see peanut butter, you go slightly giddy. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty innocent one. There's a lot more than that. But these are places where we get, we suddenly find that we we lose that steadiness of presence. We then we start reacting. So every time that reactivity occurs, where you're blind, you're blind, you're lost, you know, you're compulsive, that's called a kilesa. You still act and you still receive the result, but you're not really fully in charge of your own mind. You've been taken over by kilesa. Can you speak more about the tendency of the untrained mind to somehow leak out, outflow into virtual worlds of thought and feeling and perception? feels like there's an addictive current of energy in these outflows, a sense of stimulation that's not fulfilling, but still the energy keeps flowing out into these constructive worlds of thought and perception. I find it really strange that this tendency is so deeply ingrained, this addiction to a process that's not nourishing, but keeps happening nonetheless. Can you speak about this and reverse these outflows? Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome when you find yourself... <laughs> You know, there you go again. You just did it again. <laughs> so the three outflows, sometimes it's described as four, but the three main ones are called ignorance. That's the big one, because ignorance is the one that, that stops you seeing the other ones. And the other ones, very simply, are the outflow to sensuality, to seeking gratification, stimulation um, in the sense realm. And the other one is uh, becoming or manifestation. That is, we seek to manifest as something or the other. We seek to manifest as something or the other. Which, you know, and that, you think, what? That means I seek to be something, a continual something, now and in the future. I seek to be something now and in the future. I seek to manifest as something now in the future. Being a human being, being a deva, being a teacher, being this or the other, I seek to continue that kind of thing. This is called bhava. Bhava, existence, manifestation, becoming, because it's always moving along to into the future. And it tends to stretch back in the past. I was that, and I will be that. And these um, asava outflows means that the chitta, as you can imagine, is leaking out. Its energy is running out to get that becoming process on the road. Let's get somewhere yeah, let's be something in the future. They become the uh, the leaking of the chitters leaking out. Let me get hold of those tastes and sights and sounds and thoughts. Yeah, so it's, it's it's energy is running out into that because ignorance it doesn't realize. Hey, 
this is dukkha, this is suffering, this is stress. You're not going to you're not going to find anything there apart from more more of the same hunger, right? Yeah. So the ignorance doesn't really see it, and we can see it intellectually. We get the idea, oh yeah, yeah, that's not so good, but this is not that's not deep enough. The seeing has to become right, very fundamentally established in the chitta, where you where you can begin to access that energetic upheaval. Yeah. So when the when the chitta is properly embodied, you can sense that upheaval when you're about to leak out into something. <laughs> and it really, you know, it's a compulsive thing because it has all kinds of messages. This will make you secure. Everybody wants you to do this. It's your duty to become that. If you get one of these, you'll be really fine. You know, and it's it's an emotional message. It's not, it's not, but you, we believe it. Because it's talking in my voice. It's using my voice. It's saying, oh, you know, you want to be one of those. You know, we feel, yeah. You'll be found, you'll be good, you'll be, yeah, you don't go. And it's always, you will, you will. But, so it's very difficult to break it because the voice, it's not even necessarily a verbal voice, it's emotional movement that's so compulsive. So, so it takes a lot of practice and training to see, you know, to feel that welling up and to know those voices and those emotional movements as not your friends. It yeah. doesn't mean you can't have any lovely heart qualities, but these guys are not your friends. Yeah. It would be much better just stay where you are and just open gently. Open gently where you are. That's going to be much better for you than running off into the future and into some idea of what you should be. Stay where you are, open up. Yeah. And this is definitely like any other addiction. It's, you know, we, we can get it and yet doing it, you've got to cut it, and you've got to do it again and again and again until that, you know, until that, that weight, that power of ignorance has been um, broken. Um, so this is the big number, isn't it? Along that path, generally the sense is, well, it, this becoming thing, this manifestation thing is so pervasive that it's best to just sort of push it into a decent area. Like, if I'm going to become something, I like to become a nice person <laughs> you know, rather than status so let's just become a little bit kinder and more patient and more generous then that's then that's going to cool the whole craving thing down which is the fundamental energy behind it or the craving and then if i can just cool that down then you know you're taming a wild beast just getting it to, to cool it down then you could practice mental it but until you've tamed you've got hold of it and steered it is very difficult because um, you're dealing with the power, most powerful force in the universe uh, the only more powerful thing than that is wisdom unfortunately we have that too can you differentiate interdependence from toxic codependency in relationships i think essentially you have to learn to listen a lot <laughs> in relationships very simply, very simply. <laughs> uh, you know, listen a lot and, and no, don't form any conclusions. Just keep listening. And then, yeah, I have to be in a relationship, otherwise I can't hear anything. Yeah. I want to hear you. I want to hear, I want to hear what my mind does when I see you. When I, hear, I want to hear that. 
And as I'm doing that, I want to notice when I'm getting, you know, irritated, disappointed, pushy, quieting that down. If I work on my end of the stick, if I work on where I'm at my end of it and free that up, then, you know, the relationship is going to be one that's informative, instructive and enhancing. So it's really trusting that relate to what what relatedness requires, which is exactly the same as meditation. Meditation is relationship. Touch something lightly. Hey, how are you? Listen a lot. How's that? What's happening to me? Touch it again. Did you mean that? Listen a lot. Listen a lot. And check what's going on here in your own embodied mind. Work with that. So other people then really instruct us because, you know, and the Buddha said, you know, Kalyanamita, spiritual friendship is the whole of the holy life. One of the absolute requirements for enlightenment is spiritual friends. You know, really. So because I don't see the back of my head. I can't see my blind spots. I have to have somebody else show them to me directly or make me aware of I'm getting frustrated and angry with her. What's happening? You know, she's touching something in me that I haven't, I haven't really dealt with. She's touching my need to be on top of everything or you know, something. You know. So other people, either directly or just by their presence, tend to show us where, where we are occluded where we've got the blinders on. And of course, other people give us a chance to manifest love and compassion. Mm. So then, then, but then it's, then that's a really useful relationship. Then we have the chance to experience these lovely qualities rising through us. And, um, and also, but then, and learn as well. Then we're not hanging on to the person as, as, as some kind of object that I, fixed on but really the space to you know to receive and listen to what's occurring you know that is so important because nothing else does nothing else means as much to you as a human being nothing else will touch your mind like another human being nothing else will get under your skin drive you nuts and look after you and cherish you like a human being (laughs) mindful internally mindful externally and mindful internally and externally can you please explain this teaching Ajahn? yeah it's it's one of those things that's kind of rolled out as this means mindful internal means me mindful external means you other people and i think it could work like that uh, but sometimes it seems not quite right you know, because it says you know you when you mindfulness of breathing, you contemplate your breath internally, you contemplate it externally. I've never seen anybody contemplate somebody else's breathing. <laughs> I mean, you probably get locked up for it. <laughs> and particularly if you're sitting alone in the forest. So what, what's it, what does it mean? Is this just some phrase they've adopted? Um, or does it mean you're kind of either really inhabiting your breathing, really in it, as as a felt experience flowing and you are that you're kind of flowing through it and or that you're watching it from outside like oh my breathing starts in my nose and goes down to my belly so you're having much more object oriented 
um, view of it, which will be the external, you're standing outside it, contemplating it, internally you're inhabiting it, you know, you're really letting it flow through you. That's one way I, I, I look at that, because I can't make this sense of, this simplistic sense, external means other people, I can't make that fit for the number of occasions this phrase is used. And the words really are ajata bahida, which means here and there. <laughs> so it's it's pretty vague. It doesn't say self and others, it says here and there. It says here and there, and then where the two meet, where here and there meet. And then and one of the suttas, it says, if you cultivate direct knowing, you will not be here, you will not be there, you will not be in between. This is the end of suffering. So the, the well, you know, there's no polarization anymore. There's no, there's no creation of a separate self. There's no separation, you know, in that. So, and the mind has been transformed from an object-seeking mind or a self-seeking mind to something that's just got no positions. So these are the things I kind of work with when I look at those phrases. It's amazing that here and there can be translated as internal and external. That's incredible. Translated as self and other when those words have not appeared at all. Ajahn spoke about the poisons of certain kinds of thoughts, how people have a lot of fear. Can he speak about this? Well, fear is, is natural and fear is a part of... Uh, Alertness is essential. If you don't have any fear, you're going to get hit by a truck. Um, you know, it's not something that's really wrong. It's just when it becomes unbalanced, so we live in a paranoid state. Um, you know, so a sense of healthy alertness of the danger of samsara, the danger of the senses, is considered good. You know, to be aware of the hazards of sense contact. And so if you're aware of the hazards of coronavirus, that's good. Um, but when it's something that you know you, you, you're kind of becoming paranoid through, is when when that you haven't been able to moderate the fear energy because you don't have a proper inner foundation. Now, it's proper inner foundation is what I'm talking about right at the beginning, the sense of the internal axis, uh, and that's there. You know that sense of a steady presence is there, and from there we begin to recognise. One day, there is no doubt, I will die. It could be the next hour. And this is something you're encouraged to remember time and time again. Not to make you miserable, not to make you miserable, but stay on your toes and remember, you know, there is a way out of this death trap. And it's through developing this inner, inner foundation, because then when the body breaks up and passes away, this energy is then released. So then... You know, we know we're going to die. We're not in an eager for that. But also, we have a certain sense of, you know, my time will come. I'm preparing. I'm preparing. No, if you start getting panicky, then you're not preparing. You're just, you're not preparing yourself properly. You're getting anxious, you're not preparing yourself properly. Try to calm the anxiety by feeding the energies in your body to the center of feet taking refuge, and taking refuge in your virtues. As it, the Buddha says, do not fear. If you've cultivated, your death will be a good one. If you've cultivated learning, fortitude, generosity, wisdom, 
just leaves. Then when you pass away, when your body falls apart, your chitta will be released to somewhere good. So the most important thing is definitely sign of danger is the time to not panic, but to become very steady and cool inside. Yeah. And of course, we do the normal things of, yeah, sure, I don't put this thing at any, because it's a precious thing to be alive at this time. So we don't just, not heedless, but at the same time, no panic, no fear. And you find a place where the fear stops in the center. That's where the fear doesn't go. There is a place beyond fear. Bhante, could I ask you, when you say the cheetah is released, that sounds very like a Christian soul or something. Great what do you mean by that statement? I've never heard that before. Yep, it's there. It says, you know, the jitter is released through non-clinging. This is one of the standard phrases at the end of some of these uh -huh. suttas when there's some comes out hand. His jitter was released, jitter vimuti, from the asava, from the outfrows, from the leakage through non-clinging. That's a pretty standard repeated refrain. Jitter is released. And if it's a soul, it's a soul. <laughs> Get over it. <laughs> you know, what do you want to call it? You know, I'm not going to struggle over the nature of a word. Spooky. You know, call it a soul. Call it a soul. I'm not going to freak out. I'm going to call it a soul. Well, thank you, Bandy. Um, I have a, uh, a another question here. How do we work with aversion to a poison, uh, such as chemical sensitivity? I become very ill to chemicals when I smell them. Yeah, well, it's not entirely a dumber question. I mean, you just got to avoid those things. Uh, and... Uh, you know, like any other other form of, of disease, you should you should avoid it. Uh, I mean, your your issue, depending what the chemicals are, because I mean, like everything is chemical. The paint is chemical. The clothes are chemical. The washing powder is chemical. Every shampoo's chemical. We live in a chemical environment. You know, you try and get away from it. You've got to get out in the backwoods somewhere because everything's chemical. And a lot of it is, oh, this is fine. Yeah, da, 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 da. yeah, well, maybe, you know, but a lot of it isn't fine. Uh, so people do have these bodily problems through through the the, the chemicalization of our environment. And they should, one should certainly then seek seek nature. One try to find some clean place to to refresh the system. Yeah. What is the difference between cheetah as knowing and cheetah as learning? Or is it, is it all cheetah? Well, it's all cheetah, but cheetah can be... Uh, fundamentally, the issue is that cheetah, in its essence, in its final core quality, is, is just a pure, open knowing. But it gets wrapped up in these various wrappings, kandas. I don't want to get too jargon these constructions, it gets wrapped up in all that. It gets wrapped up in sense consciousness. It gets wrapped up in perceptions. It gets bound up with feelings. So it gets extremely like a, like a cocoon of this stuff around it. And it's not all bad. It's not necessarily evil. It, but so, so, then, so the normal process for the average person is the jitta, which is this primary open knowingness, uses that or is used that to acquire intellectual knowledge, know-how. Its nature then is to generate 
structures and conditions, uh, concepts, opinions, views, knowledge. That's what it does. And because we've been born into this life, into this situation where in a way that's what it has to do. It has to learn how to operate and how to figure out in society. So that's what it does. What it learns is conditioned. Now the wisdom faculty in the jitta learns several things. It learns wholesome, unwholesome. Hey, that way causes that. That way causes that. Get it. That's good. That's bad. Get it. It learns suffering and non-suffering. This is going to cause you stress. That's what stress feels like. Sometimes stress feels very nice, exciting, but it's still stressing. You have to learn that very deeply because stress isn't always unpleasant. It can be exciting, but we just find the jitters being pressed by that because we don't know the beauty of the unstressed state. The un untrained jitter just looks for the more agreeable kinds of stress. Because <laughs> we don't know the unstressed state. So the third kind of wisdom is that it knows the unstressed. It's, oh, this is it. And then that, there's nothing. There's no thought. There's no impression. It's just, oh, this is what it's like when you don't have to keep something going all the time. So that, that's the wisdom can develop in those ways. Learning will always, depending how you use the word, learning will tend to be the accumulation of, of ideas and skills, which are not necessarily unwholesome or bad, but um, it's, a, it's of a different nature. There's a related question to that here. Can you speak more about the process of cleaning out the cheetah and the supports that one can cultivate to enable this process? Especially curious about the gradual process of how to go deeper. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, like how long you got? <laughs> find a good person, first of all. <laughs> Stage one, find some good people, hang out with them. <laughs> so that's the first step. <laughs> really, really, because then you're going to pick it up through your skin. You're going to pick it up through just, hey, you know, I'm not doing that. They're not doing that. The fundamental thing we learn from really is other people. So that's very important as a foundation. And then from that, you begin to, oh, yeah, this is right. From that you begin to get a sense of this is ethically true and pure and this is ethically wrong. And this one I rather like this better. So you get a sense of cleaning out your ethics and then a bit of restraint because you realise if I keep putting my head into Netflix six hours a day, I end up being just a basket case of bubbling thoughts. Cut it out, you know, half an hour's enough or even quit. So you get a bit of sense restraint. This is how you learn because all the time what you're referring back to is jitter, how jitter is being affected. Now, until you meet good people, you don't even know what you're talking about. Until you've heard some dhamma, you don't know what you're talking about. So if you meet good people, you'll get some good dhamma. And then, you, oh, oh, that. Oh, yeah, that. Oh, awareness. Oh, right. Oh, that. Oh, yeah. You know, until you get that, you don't even know what to look at. So you've got to get meet people, listen to some dhamma, and then they're going to say, then you're going to find out you can begin to have a, something you can rely upon that will tell you, don't do that, do that. And the more you follow that trajectory as it refines, then that's how you purify. And that trajectory, very simply speaking, of do this, don't do that, is do loving kindness, don't do ill will. Uh, do compassion and concern, 
Don't do callousness and brutality. Do ease and ease and steadiness. Don't do panic. Yeah. Uh, do conscious concern. Don't do guilt and regret. Yeah. Do forgiveness. Don't do that. You know, because this is. Yeah. And, and and so we. That's how you learn. You learn from having it simple. It's all the twofold thought. It's not that difficult, really. It's just you have to apply that twofold examination to, to, to the whole process of consciousness is rolling on. This message, I'm listening to this message in my head, don't follow that one, pause. And the thing is, sometimes you don't even know there's an alternative message because you've been so compulsively running down that track, you don't even realize there's another story. So you just say, well, just, you know that's not good, just pause and wait. <laughs> wait for Jitter to say, oh, maybe, uh, oh, maybe I'll just, you know, that way. You know? So some of this is the case because some of the stuff is we run down the wrong track for so many years, uh, you know, uh, that we don't even know another way. Uh, so this, this is the difficult thing. We don't realize we have a choice. But when you don't realize you have a choice, you're just compulsive. You have the choice to stop. <laughs> and you must exercise that choice to stop time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. Time again. Yeah. This is called heedfulness. Yeah. You're a compulsive workaholic. Stop. Uh, and you do it. Stop again. Stop again. Stop again. And you still can't see any other signal. But if you keep doing it long enough, you're going to get... Somebody's going to wake up. Stop, go back to your body. Stop, go back to your body. Breathe out. Breathe out. Stop, go back to your body. You won't get another thought. You've got this incredibly powerful train of thoughts. Just stop, don't follow it. Go back to your body, breathe out. Wait. And you get won't get a thought, you might, but you get some kind of oh, maybe I could just oh. quiet little voice comes up. What it's like to not be compulsive doesn't feel exciting, and so we we really need to do it a lot till that flavour of non-excitement, non actually begins to feel comfortable. Then. This is, this is where you need encouragement. Encouragement to follow the right way because the right way isn't always evident. <laughs> yeah, it isn't always evident for a, for a mind that's been very conditioned. Uh, so we can go so far and then we just have to start trusting our teachers and friends and situations and trusting that we can at least stop <laughs> for a moment and breathe out. And go back to the body and wait and ask, you know, help, give me a new way, you know. And jitter will generally, oh, start to rise. You know? The beauty of this is you can't you can't do it all yourself from your self position. You know, this is not technology. It is religious. What I mean, and what all the religions say, is there's something bigger than me. And it's a lot better. It's a lot wiser. So at a certain point, I just stop and open and wait. 
And if what I'm waiting for is Quan Yin, fine. If I'm waiting for Jesus, that's fine. If I'm waiting for Tala, that's fine. If I'm wait, you know, whatever you call it, I'm waiting for something from outside of my conditioned mindset to start to arise. And if, you, if you're open to that, it will come. Because we're actually not this constricted experience in the middle of the vast cosmic awareness. We are the cosmic awareness. It's got locked into a little pocket somewhere. We're a hernia <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> and it can, oh, you something's bigger than my agitated mind. I just have to wait and open to it. And the way you can do that is right in your embodied presence. Now, if you, make, if you want to pray to somebody else, that's you can do it that way. That's up to you. <laughs> whatever, whatever works, really. But at a certain point, you just have to open up in faith and, and, and trust, trust your gut. Because the chitta will then, because it, it does know a good thing when it gets it. He knows what purity feels like. And then you, you know, so you train it first of all with definite do don't, definite encouragement, do this don't do that. Then you start to train it in feel your way with this, feel your way with that, and eventually you just train it in I know that's bad, just stop and open up in faith and let the dhamma, what I call it, let the dhamma lead you, and it will, it'll come in from somewhere where you weren't expecting it. So wisdom rises spontaneously from somewhere you'd never, you never thought of. <laughs>